0: wrong. Welcome back everybody to the Quarantined Cromcast, one of the savage podcasts on the internet. We are your hosts for the day. I'm Jonathan. I'm, I'm Josh.
1: Luke. <laughs> oh, I'm Luke. This is class. This is gold. This, this is radio gold. Is, yep.
0: We can't go clockwise when it's just digital ether that we're sitting in with each other.
2: I'm Josh. <laughs> I'm I'm
1: Luke and you're joining us for a show.
0: Yeah, this is a very professional podcast that is about the fictional writings of Robert E. Howard and other Pulp Fiction-type folks. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Louis L'Amour and his story, The Trap of Gold. We are in Corona quarantine. We've all stayed at our own homes, and we're going to work through it, and you're all going to love it.
1: I think so. (laughs) It's 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 a sad state of affairs when we all live within, like... Uh, I don't know, a three-mile radius of one another as the crow flies. I think that's yep. pretty a pretty fair approximation. That's pretty close. But yet we still
2: opted uh, to hop on the calls. We're, we're demonstrating safety yeah. on our podcast.
0: The Cromcast oh, Triangle tell. could not be traversed tonight due to viruses. Right.
2: But it's St. Patrick's Day. That's true. Uh, we're not going to let the coronavirus get us down. We're still getting together. Uh, online and we're going to record about a Louis Lamora story and, uh, hang out and see where things go.
0: And we're all yeah. self sterilizing with some libations. Josh, what are you drinking tonight?
2: Uh, given that it's St. Patrick's day, uh, I have a little bit of Jameson's Irish whiskey. Nice. And, uh, it says it's triple distilled, which I don't know what that means. um, and then I have uh, a pint of Guinness to see me through. Is it chewy? Uh, it's it's lovely. It's malty and chocolatey and good. <laughs> That's a little awesome. bitter. Oh, my goodness. Oh,
0: it's my goodness. Guinness. <laughs> Luke, what are you having? Yeah. Give, give gonna... us that ASMR content.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a growler uh, that I'm about to, to wrap up here pretty soon. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, that I picked up yesterday at Dreaming Creek Brewery. It's the, the double rupture IPA that they that they had on tap there. They had a fire sale on some of their beer because they were basically open. They opened early at 1. They were closing doors at 5 as far as, like, bar service. Uh, and now they're only doing growlers and, like, the, the limited four-pack cans or four-packs of cans that they do uh, because it's all to-go service, right? We're at okay, that point. Yeah. So – I was I was on campus and I I wrapped up and I saw that uh, the the little brewery in town was was open for a window so I went in and I they I feel bad for them they had like an entire I don't know how much a boatload coming from Ireland of green beer
3: oh, <laughs> that cool. they must have
1: purchased uh, so they had all the green beer for today that they can't sell because everything's getting getting shut down so I I sat down. I worked on class stuff. I had a green beer, and then I filled up a growler to go, and uh, that's what I'm drinking today. Were they selling so,
0: kegs uh, of green beer that you could have bought?
1: Uh, probably. I, th- I mean, they do the growlers, but I, I guarantee they—they're not big enough that they do like the full-on, like little pony kegs and like little corny kegs. Uh, yep. but I guarantee you, they would have parted with <laughs> with a bunch. So the good thing is they're still going to stay open. Uh, and have the growlers, but man, my fingers are crossed for all of the local breweries that we have in town that they can weather this because it's gonna be, it's gonna be claiming a lot of victims of various types. This this COVID thing,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder if if most of the, the uh, breweries around town are gonna go toward having uh, growler fills and and special order type things over the next little bit.
1: Yeah, it would be cool if they could if they could if a lot of these places could keep afloat because here in Lexington we've got more than half a dozen uh, yeah. local breweries. Only a couple of them have like legit distribution and are putting out cans in stores, but there's there's four or five that that don't do that. They're
2: yeah.
1: you know providing beer to local eateries in town, but those are all closed down too. Yeah. It's all like takeout.
0: I have Wild Turkey 101. I think we should all raise our glass to all the people being affected by this quarantine and say salute yeah. to everybody that's that had their job impacted, that's got a self-quarantine, anybody that's afflicted or knows somebody that is or has family that's being harmed. You know, you're know, you in our thoughts. So here's to them. Here, here. Yeah. I mean,
2: Cheers.
1: It, it's going to be all of us, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: sure. Uh, you can probably hear Sassafras barking in the background. She's pretty upset as well.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> So that's what we're drinking. Uh, Let's go into (laughs) one thing. That's right,
2: Sash. (laughs) 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 So, since you're recording this and, and hosting, uh, why don't you decide who goes first?
0: I think that you'll go first with the one thing.
2: Okay. Um, so, today, uh, this will be dated, I guess, but um, given I said it's St. Patrick's Day, uh, GOG, good old dot GOG dot com, is having a spring sale, uh, which we will undoubtedly treat, tweet out. Um and so I picked up at John's recommendation uh, the video game um, Stardew Valley. Nice. Yeah. So I've got some Stardew Valley, but I did struggle because Owlboy was on sale, yeah. which is a, a Metroidvania type game that I've been wanting to play. It's called um, Owlboy? Owlboy. A- uh, O-W-L-B-O-Y. Cool. Um, yeah. And there's another one. um, Oh, I can't think of the name of it, but it's uh, it's another Metroidvania that uh, is set in like an insect world. Hmm. And the main character is uh, an insect. Let me see real quick. It was it was on my. I was trying to decide between all of these different things and it was on my wish list. I almost got it. (laughs) But regardless, the spring sale goes until uh, it looks like March 30th. And so, if you're looking for something to pick up, if you're looking for a video game to kill the time during this quarantine, uh, go to GOG because they've got your hookup. And uh, give me just one second, and I'll figure out what game, what other game I was going to recommend. Uh, uh, picking up was Hollow Knight, uh, and so the the stick was it with it. It's a Metroidvania exploration side scroller, but uh, you are it looks like a stag beetle and you're fighting other insectoid monsters, uh, uh, exploring this, this, uh, uh, small world, uh, that insects sort of dwell within. Uh, and it looks a lot of fun and it's gotten a, a rave reviews. Cool. Uh, and that is eight bucks. There's a new Witcher game called Thronebreaker, which is only like nine bucks. Um, so go to gog, pick up some games, ride through this, <laughs> uh, uh, quarantine time, and uh, don't worry so much about it. But I'm going to play Stardew and uh, gather the joy that uh, John has been spreading about this game, and uh, uh, make my farm and uh, not sell out to the big stores.
0: I really hope you like it. Now I feel like that's a lot of pressure. <laughs>
2: I don't. I don't think it is. I've. It's gotten rave reviews. Yeah,
0: the guy that makes it, Day he's supposed to be working on a new game here soon. We'll see what that is. If it's just as good, Luke, would you care to share with us your one thing for the evening?
1: Yeah, dog. I'm, I'm on it. I'm ready. Oh, I got it. Dog. No. <laughs> dog. No. Uh, Josh just uh, he just he just put the uh, little little golf ball on the tee for me. He named off the Witcher. So my uh, my one thing is the book that I'm like this close to uh, to wrapping up, and that is. Uh, The Last Wish, which is the first uh, short story collection of The Witcher Saga, Uh, and it's by uh, Androj Zapkowski. And I have not played The Witcher games, and I haven't yet watched any of The Witcher show on Netflix. But I have to say I am totally, totally, totally blown away and uh, really enjoying what I've read of this first uh, short story collection. It's great. I, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but everything that I've experienced reading this this book is is head and shoulders above that expectation. Cool, I picked yeah. it up kind of kind of on, on a whim at the bookstore. Uh, both it and... Oh, what's it called? Is it The Last Blood? Or Blood of Elves.
2: Blood the, of the
1: Elves. Yeah. It, blood, yeah, Blood of Elves is the first full-length novel of the Witcher saga. Both of those were in, like, legit beater like $10 paperback form nice. at, at, Joseph Beth. And so I picked them up just on a whim whenever uh, Liz and I were there for a date night kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, the, the first short story collection is it's astoundingly good. So that's what I've been reading.
2: I seconded, Yeah. I've been listening to it. Uh, the last wish that is, and I'm maybe three quarters of the way through. Uh-huh. Um, and I just I love it. Uh, the The couple of stories that really stand out to me are the one about the uh, the character named Shrike, is is good. And the uh, what's what's the character? Is it a Stroika? Uh,
1: the Striga from the, Strig- the, first, Strig- the first Striga.
2: One? Yeah, yeah, the Striga yeah. from the first story. Yeah, those, those two are yep. super, super good in my mind. Um, so yeah. Section- yeah, there's
1: there's there's so many good. There's so many good stories. So I am actually on the short story, The Last Witch, right now, uh, which is where Geralt uh, like actually meets Jennifer, which is presumably the love of his life, or whatever the story is that develops, or is there between the two of them being estranged and angry at each other. It's kind of like him meeting her. Uh, but there's a really cool framing device in between the short story, uh, short stories that are within the collection. But man, every one of the short stories has something cool to offer. Like the last, the the one before the last wish is called "The Edge of the World," and it is a uh, a midsummer May Queen story wrapped up within uh, Tolkien-esque U catastrophe wrapped up within like civilization and barbarism wrapped up within like Polish mythology. It's it's all of those things at once and it's it's badass. It's too uh, cool. And and Geralt kind of walks
2: that line between civilization and barbarism, the 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 uh city and the wildlands. It's it's he's, cool.
1: It's cool and there's it, it's it's not just fantasy. It's almost science. It's almost science fantasy. Like the more that you learn about this world and who the witchers are and who they are, like there's levels of science fictional, like X-Men qualities that pepper into the stories. There's dying earth type elements that are just at least hinted at. There's, there's all kinds of good stuff within, within the witcher mythos. So, I don't know, man, I'm all I'm all in on on The Witcher. And it was something that at first I was just like, you know, of course, just knew it as something that was like a video game property and then a Netflix thing. And I knew it was based in some short stories. And I know there's a huge lag between when the original books came out, like starting in the early 90s versus when they were, you know, translated to English. But in English, they totally hold up, and it's it's legit like literary sword and sorcery.
2: Yep, cool. Yep, they're dope.
1: I'm probably like everybody that's listening to this that's you know already listening to the Chromecast. Probably half of them are like, "Well, yeah, duh, dude," but I, I haven't read it, so it's it's a new thing to me. And they yeah. it's 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 legit. It's your thing. It's
2: not their thing. It's <laughs> <your> thing.
1: <laughs> it's true. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass the the. the
0: the, the, the talking stick. John has the conch. I will be. I'll use the conch to bring up the rear here. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to pick. I was trying to figure out what I was going to talk about, and I've settled on a comic book that I've been reading through Comicsology Unlimited. It's from IDW Press. It's called Time in Vine. I'd never heard of it ever, but it was one of the books that I can borrow for free, and the description kind of grabbed me. It was a. It was. Uh, it says a grade school history teacher. Looking for respite from her life's problems finds the ultimate escape when the owner of a local winery reveals its secret to her. If you drink the right glass of wine in the right tasting room, you'll travel back in time to the year it was bottled. Together, they journey through the history of the 200-year-old winery as well as their own. And I was like, that sounds interesting. Uh, and it's been really cool. The, the man that owns the winery, he is on a search to find all of the bottles from the vintage 1987 because that's the year his wife died, and he likes to go back and try and visit her. And the woman that gets encircled with all of this, she is a history teacher, so she just kind of wants to go back and see everything that's happened in her town over the last 200 years. And it's it's been really interesting. It's by Tom Zahler, and it's a unique kind of cartoony art style, but it stuck with me more than I thought it would. Like Just thinking about the idea of, of you know, we, we have libations every time we meet on the Chromecast. What if I got to take a wild turkey sip and go back in time to Prohibition or something and see what was going on. Uh, I just like the concept. So if you have Comixology Unlimited and you can borrow things for free, I would say give it a shot, even though it's not got superheroes or anything in it.
2: Yeah. Now's a good time for a Comixology uh, uh, subscription or trial.
0: Yeah, that's true. You get 30 days free. Yeah. Yeah. They don't support uh, the show or anything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. We won't see a cent, but so, you'll get to see some cool comics.
0: I'm not only a reader; I'm the president. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all of our one things. That's all we've been drinking tonight. We're going to be going off on a little bit of a, a new tangent. An author that I don't have any experience with, uh, Josh. Have you ever read any Louis L'Amour?
2: I've not. Uh, this is the an author that. Is synonymous with westerns, as far as I'm concerned. Um, anytime you see a western paperback, it seems like the author byline is Louis L'Amour, right. um, or it's compared to a Louis L'Amour story.
1: Yeah, but, it's either but, it's either like Zangray or Louis L'Amour. Like those are the two the two names that you can just find a hundred titles uh, along the
2: lines. Yeah, for sure. Um, but this is my first L'Amour story that I've ever read. Uh, did you know that he was born in 1908 and lived until 1988? That's pretty good. Yes. Yeah. I like that
0: symmetry. When I was reading through his, his biography, I was kind of struck by uh, an interesting, I guess if we're paralleling him with our guy, Robert E. Howard, uh, they seem to have sort of similar stories in a fashion, uh, but there's also sort of this feeling to me that Lamore is sort of the anti-Howard. Uh, he's part of a big family. He is part of a, a, a medical veterinary family, so he has that kind of experience, but they love the same things as kids. They sort of are in similar situations being in small towns, but Lamore, his life changes because he gets to move a bunch. He goes from North Dakota, where he's born, to Texas, to Pecos Valley of New Mexico, to Arizona, California, Nevada worked in the sawmills and lumber camps of the Pacific Northwest. He got on a ship. He visited all of the Western states. He went to England, Japan, China, Borneo, the Dutch East Indies, Arabia, Egypt, and Panama before finally moving with his parents to Choctaw, Oklahoma in the early 1930s where he changed his name to Louis Lamore and settled down to make something of himself as a writer. So I think he got to do some of the things that Howard never got to. He got to travel the world and see all these kinds of cool stuff. <coughs> Um, but he's, he is synonymous with Western writing. He called it frontier writing. He didn't seem to embrace the term Western as much, but in terms of factoids about him, that was just kind of where I started was seeing where he came from. And it sounds like he had an interesting life, but Luke, you've got some experience with him. You've read some more works before, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this, like in our, in our opening episode for the season, I, I grew up reading, uh, reading louis lamore as like the core westerns that i was exposed to so at the same time that i was reading say uh tolkien's work and like the Dragonlance chronicles i was reading louis L'Amour, and those were the those were the novels that my cousin jacob and i like would swap back and forth and they were the size that would fit in the back pocket of your jeans. And they were totally like (laughs) the books that we would pick up at Walmart and Polk County, Arkansas and be able to get our hands on because I wasn't buying books, uh, like at, at many places beyond either Walmart or like the occasional, uh, instance where I was at a flea market and you could get your hands on them. Uh, and yeah, so I read a lot of Louis Lemoore, but not nearly like enough to put a dent in his bibliography, because the dude wrote so much. He was one of those serial writers, but I wrote a variety I read a variety of the, the Sackett stories. Those were stories that my cousin Jacob really, really did like to read. Uh and I think I said this before, like in our first episode, but like one of the books that I had a uh had a reissued paperback of was called Showdown at Yellow Butte. And so that was a book that was actually, I'm looking like here at his bibliography, was written in 1953, relatively early within his his whole like bibliography. And I read that book, I don't know, in 1995, maybe 94, something like that. And I I I know, like I was, I was a smart kid and I knew what copyright was on the front end of the book. And I guess I never looked at it though. In this case, I had Mm -hmm. no idea that that book was written like in 1953. It just struck me that it must've been a book like from the seventies or the eighties. Uh, and a lot of his books, like I thought, I mean, I knew Louis L'Amour was alive and he was writing books, but at that point in his career, it was, well, I guess actually, so when did he die? 88. 88. So 88. So, so he was like just recently, deceased at the point like i probably started reading him in 90 or 91 uh because i was i was like 11 and my my cousin was a couple years older than me so a lot of the stuff that i experienced was like trickle down from from my cousin uh so yeah i probably started reading him in 91 so he was recently deceased but i don't know if we knew that and we just took it for granted that it was stuff that was being written (laughs) Like more recent than what it was, it just it still mm-hmm. blows me away to think about like like I was not listening to uh, music from 1953, but <laughs> I was re- I was reading books from 1953, <laughs> like I, and I, you know I read The Hobbit and I was reading Lord of the Rings and I was reading like these Louis L'Amour novels, and to me they were almost contemporary with the Dragonlance Chronicles books, but they weren't at all right. They were very different generational. Uh, publications and I mean it when I make the comparison to music it just cracks me up because I wasn't I was listening to like Def Leopard and, <laughs> and ACDC <laughs> and like at that point and it was stuff that was already old at that point in time that was handed down from my from my older sister and our cousins that kind of thing. But it would have blown my mind to actually like really think about the fact that the books were like written when my grandfather was uh, like in
2: his 20s. Yeah, uh, it looks like he wrote uh, 89 novels, uh, 14 short story collections <laughs> and uh, some a couple of nonfiction works. But yeah. now, I'm with you, man, like when I saw when I saw L'Amour on uh, uh, bookshelves, I had no idea that many <laughs> many of his works were published in the 50s and 60s.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's kind of twofold that you know it's a testament to how his stuff it's a testament to how his stuff is has stayed in print to varying degrees and I don't know how much stuff is currently being reprinted like now in 2020 but like the copies of like Lando and uh the showdown book that I talked about and I don't know there was a half dozen different ones that I had they were not old beat up paperbacks from the fifties or the sixties, they were like, they were new. Like I bought them new at, at the Walmart and poke guy or or whatever. Like, so they were on the stands and they were accessible at that point. So I think it's a mix of like the evergreen nature of those things staying in print. And also maybe this is the deeper conversation, like the evergreen nature of like Westerns in general, like these stories seem just as fresh when I read them, in 1993 or four or five or six as when they were written in 1953, four or five or six. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote over 105 existing works, 89 novels and 14 short story collections at the time of his death. And I think it says here at the time, uh, at 2007 or 2017, maybe everything was still in print
2: really everything
0: everything that he's done is still in print so that's pretty wow. amazing killer man yeah yeah it's an interesting Quite thing a- cuz i don't know how I've, i don't know if i was ever too interested in reading it cuz of some of the i guess some of the things that we're talking about like i saw it everywhere there was so much of it and i've sort of like anti-authority or something so i think i dug my heels in sometimes and was like no i won't read it because there's a trillion of them here at walmart so right does that do you know what i'm saying uh, yeah, yeah
1: i mean I, I think we've talked about this previously in the season how like now i have a much richer appreciation for john wayne than when i was younger like right. when i was younger john wayne was the westerns that my uncle dan likes <laughs> whereas i wanted to either like see the clint eastwood or uh the the you know the anti-hero like i was i was not getting some of the subtlety of some of the deeper, like I was thinking about John Wayne and the Cowboys, or John Wayne, uh, and some of his, like, white hat, black hat, western types things that I saw over and over again, and not some of the more nuanced presentations of, of that, that, that actor specifically. But, uh, yeah, like, I think the, the stories that you could pick up with Louis L'Amour, like I, my cousin and I did read a bunch of them. The ones that I tended to like, too, were some of the funkier ones, like some of them were sort of more mountain man type stories, like the Western frontier, not necessarily the Wild West, but like the, the Pacific Northwest West. Or like, I think I mentioned this, too, in the, the first recording, there was one called Lando, which is a Sackett one, but it's basically like it's a boxer story mixed with like a Western frontier kind of setting. Mm. And I, I really liked that one just because it was, it was bringing in boxing as a, (laughs) as a novel sort of like kind of component to it.
0: Yeah. I guess that I've always sort of had this conception of them as like formulaic maybe in a way. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and from reading through the Wikipedia page and some other things, like there's this one thing that I jotted down, the critic John Tusca, surveying Western literature, writes, quote, I have no argument that L'Amour's total sales have probably surpassed every other author of Western fiction in the history of the genre. Indeed, at the time of his death, his sales had topped 200 million. That's insane. Uh, what I yeah. would question is the degree and extent of his effect upon, quote, in the quote, uh, his, the effect of his writing upon the American imagination. His Western fiction is strictly formulary, and frequently, although not always, features the ranch romance plot where the hero and the heroine are to marry at the end once the villains yeah. have been defeated. Not only is there nothing really new in the basic structure of his stories, even Lamour's social Darwinism, which came to characterize his later fiction, was scarcely original and was never dramatized in other media the way it was in works based on Zane Grey's fiction. Tuska also noted, though, at his best, Lamour was a master of spectacular action and stories with a vivid, vivid, propulsive forward motion. Is that track for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I never read any Zane Grey, uh, and that's a, that's a that's a a blind spot within my my overall like reading experience. But that does track. I mean, I think now if I was to go back and read the Louis L'Amour books that I that I treasured as a as a youngster, I am pretty sure I would find them a bit formulaic. But I think they're archetypal and I think they are like they're clearly wildly popular. So I think there's something there. But, you know, uh, how many how many Conan stories are there? Twenty two, twenty four canonical Conan's.
2: Something along that that line. yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, and there's, there's, uh, a quarter of that for Coles, and, you know, like we can start talking about Howard's works. Like people accuse Howard of being formulaic with, uh, with his writing or cutting all of his characters from a similar cloth. And to some degree we can, you can have that conversation and say, yeah, cause they were, they were Howard, right? He was channeling himself. I think Louis L'Amour was writing to a type and writing to a market and there is some sure. level of uh formula to what he was doing but it was still good cheap westerns i think right. you know
0: we're scientists we can agree formulas are good we use formulas they become formulas Absolutely. for a reason yeah like right. there's power there uh so it's not necessarily to his detriment it's just i it is interesting to note that he had so many things that he published. I mean, you got to have a formula at a certain
1: yeah, point. like yeah. true, true to a pulp root, right? Like the, yeah. the the things that he wrote were truly truly in the uh, the pulp the pulp tradition.
0: It does seem like he um, maybe had that like writing to get paid, is sort of like Howard did. Like this is my maybe, job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I I want to get paid for my work.
2: Yeah, I got to crank out three paperbacks this year. Uh, on the Wikipedia page, it says when interviewed not long before his death he was asked which among his books he likes he liked best his reply was i like them all there's bits and pieces of books that i think are good i never rework a book i'd rather use what i've learned on the next one and make it a little bit better the worst of it is that i'm no longer a kid and i'm just now getting to be a good writer just now so this is just <laughs> just you know prior to his death but in that statement you can see how he is you know uh using his previous works as jumping off point, points for his future works that he you know uh he, he took what he wrote and refined it
1: i mean so so on the on the pulp on the pulp uh you know level that we're talking about things here and to tie it to the the fantastic i'm thinking of like Michael Moorcock. And specifically, yeah. like as you're talking through that, like his concept of the uh, the eternal champion, like yeah. basically a recurring sort of motif or archetype or Jungian kind of kind of story character, all these characters are the same person or the same the same soul, like re like re reincarnated various ways.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That that's one thing to it. But uh I think it was so the the Appendix N podcast actually interviewed Moorcock sometime back. And in that interview, it's it's a really good – it's a really good recording because it's Moorcock like this year, like talking about writing uh, Elric and all of his various Eternal Champion stories. And at one point, he talks about how he was knocking out those – like he would knock out a novel in a weekend or (laughs) – and not necessarily. And Moorcock a different kind of writer. I I don't know how how inclined – Louis Lamour might have been to a uh, like like lift a lift a pint of Guinness or uh or or take a take a snore to Jameson's, but I'm pretty sure that Michael Moorcock uh experimented with far headier substances than, than sure, yeah. you know than, than than Louis Lamour did. Uh, Moorcock, uh you know experienced that kind of thing, and so he talked about knocking off writing and not necessarily having a full a full headspace of like what was going on. And like one of, one of the examples I think that he gives in that appendix in podcast is like over a weekend where you might've had some sort of fever, like uh, uh, not necessarily due to drugs, but because of uh, sickness and, and coming up with a, with one of his, one of his stories and not having, (laughs) you know, any memory of what the actual story was. Like he was notorious for writing without revising. And that was like to get paid. All of this is to say that I get the idea of uh, recurrent like like iterations of a story almost sort of like honing your craft towards almost a perfect like paragon of the western or a, a paragon of the, the sword and sorcery. Does, I don't know, like I'm meandering here, but does this make sense, guys?
2: Yeah, it, it does. Actually. Go, John.
0: Oh, I just I, I agree with you. and I want to know more about the guy. Uh, in his writing process and part of the reason why is because I, when I was re- trying to research him a little bit I found a bunch of quotes from him and he sounds like the kind of guy that I think we could have had a conversation with and learned about his writing process and one of them that kind of speaks to what Luke is talking about is no one can get an education for of necessity education is a continuing process so he's always changing his so, writing yeah
2: yeah so it's never it's never done you never had it yeah. You're in progress until you, you die.
0: Yeah. Victory is won not in miles, but in inches. Little, win a little now, hold your ground, and later win a little more.
1: Oh, man. I like that. I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah. yeah.
0: This one's good. I like that. A... This one spoke to me earlier today. Anger is a killing thing. It kills the man who angers, for each rage leaves him less than he had been before. It takes something from him. Growing up around angry people, that means a lot to me. <laughs> Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I w- I was just gonna say he sounds he sounds mature. I mean, with with a, with a variety of of quotes there.
2: I think there's, I think it sounds like he he seems like he is one with his writing and his process. Like he he understands that there's no end. You're never a great writer you just write something and maybe it's good and you use that to build the next thing and maybe that'll be better and maybe it'll be worse, but you learn from it.
0: Yeah. He is the sum total of his experiences and his books.
2: Yeah. (laughs) 89 of those.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But we picked one in particular to talk about tonight. Uh, the trap,
2: a short.
1: A shorty McShorter. Song, a very right?
0: shorty McShorter. Oh, sorry, it's pretty short. The Trap of Gold is what we picked or what uh, we set up for the season. And it was from Argosy in 1951. So this is probably before his career really had taken off. It sounds like based on what I'd read, it was before he was really churning out novels two or three a year. So he was a working man at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Those, his, so his no, his novels really, really kicked up. You know, in the '60s, the sackets happened, but leading up to that, like I'm looking here, he had three novels in '51, uh, one in '52, one in '52 and '53. So basically, once the once the mid to late '50s kicked in, he was in he was in high gear.
0: He was Louis L'Amour. He was there. Yeah. he was ready. Uh, so, Trap of Gold maybe predates some of that, and. I, I don't know. I, I liked it. It was interesting. Do one of you want to kind of summarize it for the listeners?
2: Well, before we do, let's, let's revisit the the seven plots for Westerns that were uh, put forward by Frank, Frank Gruber. Uh, and just to refresh everyone's memory, they were the Union Pacific story uh, involving the construction of a railroad, a telegraph line, or some other modern technology. Um Ranch Stories, Empire Stories, Revenge Stories, Cavalry and Indian Stories, Outlaw Stories, and Marshal Stories. And and I posit that this is none of those, yet it is a Western.
0: <laughs> yes. I guess that maybe you could throw in gold in Westerns as another possible topic that could be listed as one of those canonical things, so... This one has gold, at least.
2: Yeah, maybe. And and maybe it's um, the Empire story, which uh, says the plot involves building a ranch empire or an oil empire from scratch. A classic rags to riches plot. So this character in this story is attempting to get as much gold as he can out of the um, the land that he's working.
0: A very dangerous spot of land, though.
2: Yeah, it's it's a uh, what amounts to a plateau or a butte, right? Like he's he's mined into this this vertical sort of rock formation that could um, collapse down around him at any moment. It's it's a granite upthrust. Uh, One thing that I liked about the story was all the geological terms. Yeah. And and so Batholith. B-A-T-H-O-L-I-T-H was the one that I underlined because I had never heard it before. Had you guys?
0: Not really. I've never dug for
1: gold no, before, I look, though. Yeah, I looked it up, too. But, but tell us, what's a batholith.
2: Well, it's a tower, right? Like, it's a rock tower that's generally of uh, igneous origin, so it's a volcanic formation. And inside there... Uh, go ahead, Luke.
1: Oh, no, no. So So basically uh the gold seam that this guy uncovers delves right into it, and so we have this essentially this this table of earth yeah that's situated above this precarious like ore to be mined like that's that's the whole the thing that I really like about this story is how uh we don't have civilizational uh uh-huh. elements per se we have an individual there's one dude. And there's one feature, but yet it is very Western in that it's uh, a story of like exploitation or resource extraction or western yeah. expansion,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but in like the most microcosm of situations where it only applies to one man. That to me, that is the beauty of this story: is that it's that it's it's that story uh, on the smallest scale possible, which is to say like a human, a single human being is what we're dealing with here.
2: Um, and so th- it makes mention of this alluvial fan. So this is a geologic formation that is a uh, sedimentary sort of, right? Like, so there used to be a river here and right. the sediments have been uh, sort of laid down and at the uh, quote, quote, headwaters of this, is this upthrust, this, this, um, which is a stone up, up thrust or, uh, outcropping. And the gold is all inside there. And so in order to get it, you have to chop away at the base. But of course, by chopping away at the base of this thing, you create a danger of the whole thing collapsing down on top of you.
1: So like by literally like, carving out and claiming pieces of the land, you make the situation more precarious. Like that's, that's what I kept going to in my mind. Like the, the larger story of Westward expansion. It's, it's that in, in that microcosm of like this guy, it's, it's all, it's a greed story, right? And it's him like reconciling who he is versus who he wants to be. And, like, what's his name? Wellington? Weatherton? Weatherton. Weatherton.
2: Yeah. Uh, Weatherton.
1: Weatherton it's, it's a single dude, but you get to know through the short, scant seven pages. Which So we posted uh, access to this story. It's it's something that people can get their hands on, right? Yeah. This is from uh,
0: readerslibrary.org.
1: So uh, it, it is a scant, short read. Uh, but you get a feel... Character-wise, the same way that, like, uh, A Man Called Horse, I feel like this story and that story have uh, pitch-perfect characterizations of the protagonists uh, that really, like, contributes to the, you know, like, the merits of the story. Like, I think there's a lot to be said for, like, those two stories being really effective Westerns without the, you know... Guns and, like, yeah. <laughs> railroads and, the and, like, cowpokes. Yeah. 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 yeah,
2: the trappings are there. Um, and as as you're talking, uh, the man called Horse and uh, this story, Trap of Gold, both sort of promote this notion of uh, extracting as much wealth as you can, however you can get it, like acquire by any means, but uh you are the arbiter in terms of how much risk you place upon your own life.
0: AKA capitalism? Yeah, aka <laughs> capitalism. Do, do we want to go down that path? Uh well I I so, I think that's I think yeah.
2: that's at, at the heart of it. Even like this story reminded me of one of the fantasy stories we read by Fritz Leiber, and that was The Jewels in the Forest. And in that story, if you guys remember, Fawford and the Grey Mouser went into this tower in order to uh, get these fabled jewels that were sort of uh, uh, squirreled away inside there. But in order to get them, you risked the tower, which was a sentient thing, uh, 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 destroying you, right? And so. It's it's sort of the same thing in a more realistic setting. Yeah. Like you could apply this to coal mining, or mining for copper, or mining for whatever precious metal you might be interested
0: in, right? Or just the whole Western endeavor in principle. Like these people all wanted stuff, and they wanted to extract as much as they could from the West. But every step you took westward took you in contact with untold numbers of kinds of danger from disease from the wilderness from rampaging uh, other pioneers trying to steal your stuff like if you read about claim jumpers and oklahoma sumers and hearing about all that kind of craziness or if you want to talk about the interactions between the white people and the natives that were out there everything was sort of taking your life in your own hands but it's all worth it quote unquote worth it because you might get rich. And I found that part yeah. very interesting with this story is like you were saying that it's up to you to choose how much danger you'll expose yourself to, but by necessity, the whole thing is dangerous. Like he is putting himself at risk and his family at risk. Like if he dies under this rock alone in the desert, nobody will find him. They'll never know. Uh, you know, his his family will be adrift without a caregiver for lack of a better word. And so, yeah, uh, it's, it's up to him when to stop, I guess, in this story, but that's a luxury afforded to very few people in his position. It seems to me,
2: um, I've been home a lot more recently than I have been in quite some time. And so I've been watching quite a bit of let's make a deal, (laughs) right? Which is a (laughs) press, press your luck kind of, Kind okay. of uh, kind of game where uh, you can either take the money in the envelope and it's fifteen hundred bucks, or you can open door number one. And this guy at one point in the story, Weddington has, you know, uh, five thousand dollars worth of gold, but he knows that if he keeps mining, he can get another thousand dollars worth. And that seems to me to be door number two, right? Like you can either take the money or you can see what's behind door number two and door number two might be, uh, an entire cave in, which ends your life.
1: Right. So one of the things that I really like about the story is that, uh, Weatherton is not a gambler. Like there's even an explicit statement within the, uh, the prose, Like he is someone that at least the way that like Lamore paints him as someone that's not a gambler. Like you wouldn't see this dude at a card table, but yeah, yeah, the yeah. overarching sort of theme of this is the the gnawing uh, trap of gold, like the de- yeah <laughs> the trap of gold. Yeah. I was gonna say like the the demon of capitalism, like mm-hmm. that demon of like of of exploitation, like like there's the the yearning to to maximize your goodness uh, and your resources here. That's, that's inescapable even with someone that is a cold calculating fellow like this guy he, before he starts digging, he spends a full day. Like he evaluates the, the handful of like river river flows that leads to the point. He, he sets stones so he can make a quick escape. Like should things fall? He takes all of these precautions before he starts digging. And it's once the, once the digging progresses that, thing like the, the story gets deeper and deeper and, and richer and richer with its with its like uh, you know moral meanings
0: yeah because yeah. each each cut into the rock each pickaxe motion towards the gold like in a story like this the trap of gold made me think oh we're gonna meet this very greedy type character like he's trying to get towards a Stetson hat or some other nonsense but everything he does, he sees as like, this is another year of college for my son, or this is one last day of hard labor for my wife. Like every little bit that he picks out of there is something special. And
1: so does he, does he, he never says like what the total dollar amount is for his son to go to college. Right. But there's clear statements of like five and $6,000 and Oh, I can reach $10,000. I get the sense though, that he like, he has surpassed, his target goals. It's more about like what are the extra things that can be afforded right. if I do one more day, one more half day, one more session. Right.
0: Yeah. How many days of this do I need so that my son never has to do it?
2: How many podcasts do I have to record <laughs> before I don't have to go to my day job?
1: I mean, it's it's uh I think the three of us in our in our late 30s can all Appreciate right, like a working yeah. man's uh, situation here. Like you don't necessarily want to just do something for naught, and there's there's clear evaluation of effort and return. Like these are things that that we ourselves think about on the day to day.
0: I think about it, but I think about it in terms of my of my past, I guess I would say like, these are feelings that I know I heard my grandpa enunciate like to my grandpa, every transmission he did, every car that rolled out of the Chrysler factory in Kokomo, Indiana was like one less day of college that I had to worry about or something. You know what I mean? Like that my mom had to worry about. And I heard him talk in very explicit terms like this. Like I really saw him and saw that mentality in this story that I guess depression era sort of attitude about why am I doing this? And it's because it's a better future for my kids and grandkids. And sure. I'm, I'm living that I guess. And my wife and I talk about this a lot about being, uh, uh, I don't know, like socioeconomic caste settlers like we're in a very different place from the generation and the generation before that in our family um we're not pounding dirt trying to get corn to grow or anything like that and i don't know i was fascinated by that aspect of this story like this is a guy that's putting his life and limb and whole body at risk so his kid can go to college uh it's a very american story
1: i I would agree i think so too yeah I, i think it is but, on the the flip side, I think it also gets at hubris and mm-hmm. uh like the what the individual is striving for. like there's a point, and it's unclear where it is, but this guy is doing what he is doing and putting his family at risk,
0: yes, which is the demon of capitalism, I guess if we yeah, yeah, right? like uh he's doing this all for sincerely altruistic, not altruistic, but for good reason. But there's a point where it, it is better to walk away from the table and he, he passes that really. Uh, He does become a gambler in a way.
2: Yeah. Uh, In the present operation, he was taking a careful calculated risk in which every eventuality had been weighed and judged. He needed the money And he intended to have it. He had a good idea of his chances of success, but knew that his gravest danger was to become too greedy, too much engrossed in his task. Um, I couldn't help but think about, uh, you know, shaft coal miners in Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee, who, you know, dug fairly deep and found veins of coal that you know you could get but man it's going to be risky and we're going to have to blast and we're going to have to really work and shore this up and even at that it's it's going to be a a risky endeavor
0: so i guess i'm kind of interested in that josh um you're from you're the only one of us from kentucky i feel like kentucky has a rich history of people being exploited for mineral exploitation was there part of this story that spoke to that in your past or like, what do you have a familial history with that?
2: Not, not really a familial history with that. Like most of the folks that are in my family that worked in the coal industry were, were truck drivers. Um, but, but I can certainly see the temptation of, you know, being underground, being in this dangerous situation and, Being fully aware that if, if only you could dig a little bit deeper, go a little bit further and get this rich coal vein or get, get this rich gold ore as, as in this story, then your family might be set for a while and, and the risks that you've taken up to now would be worth it. And so I, you know, it, it doesn't speak to me on a personal level, but I think anyone in an extractive industry whether it's timber or mining um, could relate to something like this.
0: I also found this one kind of interesting because in terms of coal or some of those other industries, you're usually working for the man, right? Like you are doing this. So somebody else can ultimately reap most of the profit, but this is kind of an individual enterprise, yeah, here, yeah, yeah. right? Like he's doing this and he's going to reap the, the money himself. And so, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but it is kind of an interesting angle compared to the coal and timber industries.
2: Yeah. And, and it makes me wonder, like if you are a coal miner, are you intentionally sort of slowing down the extraction to sort of uh, spread it out over time to, to extend the amount of time that the coal mine will be in operation? Like, Those those are things that I have no idea if they happened or not, but I could see that given what you said about the difference between, you know, working for a company versus this character working for himself. I don't know.
0: But like we said, it is a very short story and it pretty much is just him digging. He digs it out. He gets close to his ultimate goal of $10,000 worth of gold, but he falls kind of short. And during one of his last digs, he feels the whole thing shudder. Like there's this constant talk about, oh, he feels this cold tingle down his spine. And there's this anticipatory expectation that, oh, this guy's going to get squashed and die. But he feels it move and then he runs out and he gets down the hill and he survives. He gets to walk away. And I will be 100% honest. I was not anticipating that. I don't know. No, no, no. (laughs) It has a happy ending, right? Yeah, it has a happy happy ending. ending. Like, I don't know if we're spoiled by Howard or what, but like, I, yeah, like I was waiting for a monster (laughs) or a vampire or for him to just get killed.
2: Well, I I really thought that he was going to fall into the trap of gold, right? Like, I thought he was going to dig too deeply, be too greedy, and then the whole thing come crashing down. But I love this last little bit. Um, the silence was more horrifying than the sound. Somehow he was crawling, even as he expected the avalanche of gold to bury him. Abruptly, his feet were uh, in the open. He was out. He ran without stopping, but behind him he heard a grow- a growing roar that he couldn't outrace. What he knew from the slope of the land that he must be safe from falling rock, he fell to his knees. He turned and looked back. The muted, roaring sound, like thunder beyond mountains, continued. But there was no visible change in the tower. Suddenly, as he watched, the whole rock formation seemed to shift and tip. The movement lasted only seconds, but before the tons of rock had found their new equilibrium, his tunnel and the area around it had utterly vanished from sight. He barely made it. Barely. Just got out of the trap of gold. Yeah. And he got some gold. You got fat paid, right? Yeah. Like. like... Five, Five.
3: $5,000
2: Five thousand dollars instead of six thousand dollars worth of gold. I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so, I'm going to challenge the notion that this is a Western. Why is this a Western?
0: Because it takes place in the West.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> because it has a has a frontier setting and it is focused on uh, resource extraction and it is. Uh, focused on like the benefits of like the tragedy of the commons. I think that's a,
0: a part of it. I think that's an interesting point because as I talked about before, Lamore himself called himself a frontier writer. It sounds like. And so maybe there is some distinction to be made between frontier writing, talking about the hardships that these folks face and talking about a quote unquote Western where somebody with a white hat and somebody with a black hat shoot at each other until the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah,
2: sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I I think it's a Western. I I don't want to be the the person who says it's not. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and my reasoning is the, uh, the theme of self-reliance and, you know, trusting your instincts against nature and, and ultimately prevailing here. He does beat but I w- the basalt <laughs> he does, uh, but I, I couldn't help but think about other extraction industries, uh, given given my background and where I'm from.
0: That makes total sense to me. So would we tell people to read it?
2: I think it's great, and and actually, um, given that uh, uh, whether my school is going to host. Uh, in-person classes or online classes in, in the in the coming months uh, is is kind of up in the air. As I read this, I thought this might be a good uh, reading for environmental science. I could see that given the uh, the themes of extraction and risk versus benefit, and uh, did this guy get what he wanted, and is is that. Uh, Luke brought up the tragedy of the commons earlier. Like, you know, uh, if, if the commons is this amount of gold and this amount of precious metal and wealth, and this person took it all, all that he could access and the rest of it is just gone. Right. It's in terms of, uh, current technology within the story, it's, you can't get any more of it. Right. uh, uh is this an ethical, uh, means to an end.
0: Hmm. What do you think your students would respond to that? Yeah, more money.
2: <laughs> Get that money. Get paid. More money. To mo which kiddies. I would, I would reply: more money, more problems.
0: So yeah, I don't know. That's true. Luke, what do you think?
1: I think it would. I think it would fit there and. I don't know man this is really a good story it it's so it's so sweet and like short it, it it's a it's like a Hershey's kiss of a of a western like <laughs> <What>? it's <laughs> like even more than any of the other short stories that we've read this season but yeah i i give it the, the thumbs up and i think it do, i think it would fit in not just a talk about like western western stories but in a variety of situations. Like, th- this is just a good, a good, like, American story. It's a good Western story. It's a good uh, ecological story. There's, there's a lot to it.
0: If uh, we have been talking about Louis L'Amour, if you were going to tell people that are like Josh and I that have never really experienced him previously, would you say that this fits with him as a writer in your experience? Or is this uh, sort
1: of an outline? Not, n- yeah. the, well, I mean... My reading of him is the the standard like Western novels with uh you know a lot of the tropes that we talked about earlier. So this is different. So this is not representative of at least like what I thought of as like the Louis L'Amour stories growing up. But it is it is rich and it's great, and I, I would suspect that it gets a whole lot more done in a few a few less pages, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like yeah. like it's a richer story for its brevity.
0: If you were going to point some of our listeners who haven't read Lemoore before towards things that you think they should pick up or try, are there any that you would say? I mean, you said the Sackett uh. series and Lando...
1: Yeah, I mean, those are so, so I don't, I can't necessarily vouch for whether or not Lando is like good, uh, but it was one that I remember liking a lot. And so I name drop that and then the, what, the shadow at Yellow Butte. Like, those are, those are a couple stories that really stand out or showdown at Yellow Butte. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so I'm looking over the, the stories here like taggart is one that i remember reading and then flint and sackett like and lando and maybe shalako maybe it's chilico uh i don't know like they are good in their in their entirety i don't think you would be wrong picking up a handful of the sackett stories and working off of those like the daybreakers is a big one where there's a variety of the, the Sackett's all sort of in, in the story from what I recall. Uh, I think those would be good, but I really think picking up a core big Sackett story would be good. But also if you were to pick up something like showdown at yellow, Butte, which is like the, cl- like the quintessential Western novel, you know, get in, get out in 250 pages. You're not going to go wrong with one of those two. I, I can't say this is the story to read uh, because I, I I haven't read them like since I was younger, uh, but I I would say give it a give it a shot. Yeah, I I would too. Sorry sorry for my my vagueness there, but <laughs> I guess the I guess the short story is figure out if there's a high point second novel that might scratch your itch and jump in that if you want to read like a variety of extra stories, you know if you might just want to like read a couple in sequence, that would be one approach. Or if you just want to get in and get out, like just, just pick uh, one of the quintessential like Western stories and just read it and see if you like it. Ba-boom.
0: <laughs> ba-boom, ba-boom. Anything else that we need to say about the Trap of Gold? Don't fall into it. Don't fall into it. Would you say that it's a
1: trap? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah I, honestly i'll be, on, uh, I'll be honest I, I i i can't believe that we didn't that we didn't drop an akbar joke earlier <laughs> earlier yes episode without doing that i can't believe <laughs> I you're so the brought, one that brought it up <laughs> i had it and i forgot like uh
0: I can't believe we we let it slip past us. I'm kind of disappointed in Josh and I.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. I was actually thinking more of, along the lines of gold member. Oh yeah, that's a trap of gold. <laughs>
3: I love gold. I love gold.
0: Oh, th- this is the Chromecast content that people come to the show for right here. Our impressions. <laughs>
2: My favorite thing about recording here is Ashley periodically looks at me and shakes her head no and just <laughs> and just uh, leaves the room.
0: Yeah, we appreciate that everybody kind of toughed it out with us on this experiment. We've never done a, a free person Skype in like this. Yeah, uh,
2: but now that it works, we know that even if we get uh, coronavirus, which we won't <laughs> knock on wood. uh <laughs> We won't. Ashley just came in and looked and glared at me, but we won't get it. But if we do, we can keep the podcast rolling. Absolutely.
1: And yeah. we can
0: we can be in our our undies. Yeah, I'm wearing my comfy my, pants. Yeah, yeah, I'm wearing my comfy pants too. And we can all have as much bourbon as we want. I've had a lot. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no,
2: not bourbon. Jameson, Irish whiskey. It's triple distilled, which I have still not looked up. I don't know what that means.
1: It's through the, they just ran it through the pot like the three, three times, dude.
2: Yeah. But why? Dude, the... you understand distillation. I know. I do understand distillation. <laughs> but, but why do it three times? Uh, clean, I... clean taste. That's what they want to go through. Because it is of clean. It's, it almost has no flavor. Because it makes the British nervous. Oh, I I went there. That's a hot take.
0: They don't come here for the hot takes. They come here for your Mike Myers impression. Lay it on us one more time.
3: I love gold.
0: (laughs) I don't think this is very
2: good. Where are we going next, Scott?
0: Up next, we're heading into the movie time. We're going into some Western films. We're going to have the little Western Chromecast Western Film Fest. We're going to watch a Sam Peckinpah movie, The Wild Bunch. And I'll let yeah. Luke, Luke introduce the second movie that we're going to watch.
2: Wait, before he does, I want there to be a big buildup to this. Because I think it's an epic movie that deserves an epic intro.
1: Are we talking about the proposition? Is that We what? are. We are, oh. buddy. <laughs> it, I, I was a little bit uh, uncertain if that's what I was supposed to say.
2: Yeah you are yeah. supposed to say the proposition
1: I, I love that movie uh it's a quiet movie in a lot of ways but i don't know it's an australian western and i love it to
0: hell and back uh it's a sequel to crocodile dundee 2 if i remember correctly that's right <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah.
1: absolutely not They go uh, back in time but if you're if you're into john hillcoat if you're into uh, apocalypse apocalypto stories if you're into Nick, nick cave if you're into guy pierce uh if you're into civilization versus bar- barbarism the propositions where it's at man
0: so you probably have some time on your hands i think that one's a uh, oh. video on demand right like we can get that online uh,
1: i'm not for sure
0: i bet it's on I amazon prime
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's there. You can get it for two ninety nine for sure. Yeah. Uh also there's a lot of like uh, brother issues. There's a lot of family family drama. I mean ever er- everybody's got a little bit of that, right? Yeah. You got a little like you know, that guy, this guy, like brothers against one another's. It's good stuff.
2: So we're going But be- here's
1: the thing. Here's here's the thing, dude. I suspect on our on our next like movie recording we're probably going to be talking about western movies willy nilly so pick your three favorite western movies and watch them because chances are we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of them you're like, telling me to they do that go, like you're telling josh to no i'm that? telling I'm, t- I'm telling i'm telling everybody ah. listen to it and and do it like i, I mean you know so we, we will certainly like josh has already said he's watched the searchers yep right yep uh I've got we once talk, upon a time in the West. Yep, we we've talked about uh, Leonie spaghetti westerns. Yep, we've talked about this dude named Clint Eastwood. Uh, we've talked about here with the proposition in Hillcoat. So that brings up like, oh, what's it called? Is it the uh, the Mockingbird? Is it the the Aboriginal like Australian Western? No, I don't know. That. Uh, I don't know. I think it's called the Mockingbird. Uh, but it's the uh, the the director of the Babadook. That's kind of a a sister or a brother to, you know, the the Australian civilizational like thing in 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 the proposition. Uh, what else? Like
0: Jeremiah Johnson.
1: Yep. If if you we've talked about that here, <laughs> like like watch whatever your three favorite westerns are. Yep. I, I guarantee you, we're gonna be talking about.
0: Tombstone. Like a broad
1: smattering of Western movies. Somebody's right? gonna to watch
0: Tombstone and tell us about it. <laughs> if, they, if they watch their three favorite westerns and they want to tell us what those three favorite westerns are in preparation for the Chromecast Film Fest, Josh, how can Movie they segued. reach how can they reach out to us and tell us what those are?
2: Reach out to us by emailing the Chromcast at gmail.com we're on Facebook and Twitter at the cromcast and you can call us that's 859 429
1: crom more t- more to the point go ahead and uh give us a call and tell us what your three favorite westerns are Good. and justify yes. it Just
0: give the us that oh this yeah, is the yeah, professor yeah. coming I mean, out on you
1: yeah i mean if you want if you want <laughs> to, if you want the credit for the question you got to tell me beyond like what they are They justify why they are.
0: Design a flow chart. Tell me how they flow into one another. Yes, please do tell us that. We would be interested in hearing it. We know a lot of you enjoy that kind of cinema as well, so we will include anything that you send us in the next show where we talk about these films. We hope you're all staying safe out there and that you're keeping yourself and your family safe. Uh, Take everything seriously from the CDC and the government when they tell it to us. And we hope you've enjoyed the the quarantine podcast here tonight. So we'll catch you a little further down the road west.
3: Yeah.